heated disputes, protracted conflicts, and outright schisms are common in intellectual movements, even in the positive, rational movements, such as objectivism. But why? Why do schisms occur within intellectual movements? And what are some of the principles that guide the Ayn Rand Institute in navigating disputes and conflicts within the objectivist movement? These are central questions addressed in a new essay of schisms, public and private, which we've published in New Ideal. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ilan Jerno, and today I'm joined by the authors of that essay, Ankar Gatte and Harry Binswang, to talk about some of the issues that they raise in their article. Ankar, Harry, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to you. So I thought we should start by talking a bit about setting a context with the audience, because I think that not everyone may have had a chance to read the essay yet, and I strongly encourage everyone who's listening or watching today after, if you haven't read it today, after the conversation, go read it and then come back uh, and, and you can digest it and uh, see where we're coming from. And uh, what we are going to do is not assume that much uh, knowledge about what the essay has, and we'll actually bring out some of the key points in the essay. Uh, so I think that's just to orient people to the kind of a, a context we're assuming on your part. Now, obviously, I think that some of the questions might arise that'll assume more of a context. Uh, Harry, you, as one of the authors, did you have anything you wanted to share about the essay? I think you had the perspective on this. Yeah, I think that it's something that you'll want to read and find enlightening because it has new material that hasn't appeared anywhere before. And it's a very important essay. I, I think it will also give you a sense of the solidity of the real objectivist movement. Thanks. So one thing I wanted to set, start with, there's a certain cultural context that has a view that where judgment is something that people frown upon. It has a bad reputation and for various reasons, some good, some not so good. But I thought it'd be good to start with Ayn Rand's view of moral judgment. Where does it fit in with her philosophy and what does she think it looks like in practice? So maybe I'll hand this over to you, Ankar, and then Harry, if you want to add to that. I'll say something very general, which is that she thought of the whole issue of justice as supremely important in life. What, and if you're taking your own life seriously, trying to advance your own interests and your own happiness, you should be trying to figure out the, the people that you're going to deal with, who is good, who is mixed, and who is evil. And it's, it takes careful work careful intellectual work to figure that out. But if you're taking your own life seriously, trying to advance your interest, you wanna know who's on the side of reason, who is mixed, sometimes acting rationally, sometimes not, and who is um, sort of rebelling against reality, who is an evader, who is dishonest. And you wanna embrace the people who are good and you want to avoid and sometimes condemn and so, but avoid the primaries, avoid the people who are evil in your own life. Like, like if you're taking your own life seriously. So the idea that you should not judge is really to throw away your self-interest. It's like, it, as though it does not matter to you if you're dealing with good people, mixed people or evil people. And that the whole um, kind of refrain that we hear often in today's uh, intellectual culture that don't judge, 
to take the, I mean, it's been secularized, but the kind of Christian judge not lest ye be judged. So I won't judge you, you don't judge me. That's not in the interest of people who are good. It's only in the interest of people who aren't good. That uh, I don't wanna be judged. And if I agree not to judge you, you won't judge me. And it's a betrayal of the values and it's a betrayal of what's good. So the issue of judge, justice and judgment from Ayn Rand's perspective, from her philosophy, it's a supremely important virtue. And Harry, um, I wanted to ask you to take us to fill in for us a bit what Ayn Rand thinks um, judgment looks like in practice. Well, how does one do it? Because there is a view in the culture that to be judgmental, to, to do any kind of judgment is to be judgmental, moralistic. How does she think about this issue? I think the issue is proportionality. There are all kinds of relationships that you can have with people. There's uh, a functional relationship like you have with the guy behind the counter when you buy your newspaper, if people still buy newspapers. And there's a casual acquaintance relationship a mild friendship, a deep friendship, a romantic relationship, and they all have, and, and of course then a business partnership where you're uh, trusting the honesty of the person among other things. But the degree of sanction varies with the degree of the relationship. So you are certainly approving of a person who's a close friend, for instance. You may not approve of every aspect of him, but you're approving of his essence, and even more so with the person you choose for love. So to um, what I think some objectivists don't understand, but Ayn Rand certainly did, is that you can remove a relationship in stages and in proportion to what the problem is. And we're talking about moral problems here. A prime example of that is that with Nathaniel Brandon, she broke off a personal relationship before she broke off the business relationship. That turned out to be only a matter of weeks between the two, but um, you can back off. It's not, the alternative isn't you learn that you're uh, the the bag bagging out boy at the supermarket endorses the Green Party, so you have to stop going to the supermarket and post posters denouncing the supermarket as an agent of death. Or you don't judge. There's common sense proportionality that you can apply to. I don't agree with that all the way to you swine, but uh, you don't have to, you know, make it all or nothing. So just for the benefit of people who are maybe newer to Ayn Rand's ideas, they might've seen Nathaniel Brandon's essays in some of her periodic um, anthologies. So he was an associate of hers for many years and he was someone she thought was understood the philosophy very well. And then there was a break and that's the context that uh, comes be for that comment you mentioned. I, I wanna shift it now to talk more about the disputes that I think have arisen in the objectivist movement over the years. And Ankar, starting with you, so 
you're the head of the Objectivist Academic Center now at the Ayn Rand University. You've had 20 plus years of students coming to us to learn about objectivism. And I know a lot of times students come with questions about, sometimes it's the Brandon dispute, sometimes it's other disputes that have arisen over the years. Um, so tell us, uh, in terms of navigating that kind of questions that you get from students, sometimes from supporters, um, how do you approach that? And then why was it useful to put in writing the Institute's approach to how we navigate this? Let me start off by saying something about the essay. So the essay has an introductory note from ARI's new CEO, new, I mean, he's been almost four years here now, but he, he's the latest CEO, but he was new to the movement when he came on board to become CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute. He was it probably had been just two years since he had discovered Ayn Rand and was, was reading her extensively. So he was new to the movement and what he found, and this is part of what's in his introductory note to the essay, is that many people, many supporters, contributors to ARI, people interested in the philosophy, asked him about the conflicts and disagreements and even schisms that have existed in the movement and continue to exist in the movement. And why they happen, how one should think about them, are they preventable? And what he realized is, though he has some ideas about how to think about this, it is a difficult issue, or it's an issue that requires real thinking to understand what the principles are involved and how to apply them. So the, that's what the essay is about, of thinking of some of the principles about why intellectual movements in general have conflicts, disagreements among the leaders and participants in a movement, and even to the level that people go their separate way, don't want to deal with one another, um, think that there's no way to have a profitable relationship. So, and, and that's a schism when it's, it's a complete separation. So the, the, the essay is to help to clarify that and then to apply it particularly to how ARI uses and has used these principles to navigate present and past conflicts. And we talked a little bit about a few of the past conflicts as well in the essay to illustrate what the principles mean and how they've actually guided us. And it's so it's when you said students ask about this, students or someone like Tal as our new CEO are coming into a movement. It's not obvious how to think about like what is a movement? How do you navigate it? And there's people have a default attitude that I think is mistaken, but it's understandable, which is if you guys all agree about the basic principles and here, if we're talking about the objectivist movement, if you all agree with the philosophy, there shouldn't be any grounds for disagreements conflicts um and all the way to the level of two people two or two organizations saying look we can't deal with one another like we there's no profitable way so we're just going our separate way there's a tendency for people to think yeah but if you agree on your basic principles that should not happen and something is you guys are being petty allowing personality differences to um, deflect you from, you've got common fundamental goals. And part of what we're arguing in the essay is that's not the right way to think about a movement. And we can talk then about why that's not, but that's some of the context for why 
were publishing this essay. It's not all of it, but that's some of what's relevant. Yeah, I think if I can add that the, you don't want to bring into objectivism the mentality that people have in foreign relations, that what we need is more diplomacy. If we only talked to them, then we could, they would understand us and we would understand them and they would cut us some slack. Tell that to Putin. You know, this is, you, you see what's wrong with talks in uh, foreign relations. And a lot of that applies to uh, continuing to deal with and sweeping under the rug, continuing to deal with people that you think are being irrational and sweeping under the rug disagreements that you think are fundamental, whether they're mistakes or evasions. So Harry, can I come back to you and just explore this a bit further? So your history with the objectivist movement goes back to the 1960s, I think 1961, 1962, I forget exactly. Two. And, 1962, yeah, and I, it's my, it right now is my 60th anniversary. So what I wanted to ask month. you about is you've seen, sorry, you've seen a lot of disputes and disagreements and, and, and uh, you have the wider sort of historical perspective. I wanted to ask you if you think that this, the, the, the phenomenon of disputes and schisms is either distinctive to objectivism or peculiar to it or particularly pronounced in the, in the movement. How, how do you compare it to other movements you are familiar with? I think every movement that's intellectual, that's ideological, that takes itself seriously is always complaining about the old term used to be factionalism. I remember reading a Jules Pfeiffer cartoon, for those of you old enough to know who Jules Pfeiffer was, his political social cartoonist, attacking or making fun of factionalism when I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. It's normal for intellectual and morally informed movements to have disagreements that can't be resolved. And the only question is, well, in objectivism, we say everything can be proved, right? So why can't you just prove that you're right and they're wrong? There's, should I go, I, go, I don't want to monopolize here. I know Ankar is no, trying to, I, me, we're trying to get elaborate. his video synced. Sure, let me get, let me ask you a further question on this just to round it out. So. If we think about, so I've been in, in events with libertarians and conservatives, and I've been surprised. I guess well, I was naive at the time, but I, I was, I heard, and in, other, and in other groups as well, I've heard people that I thought from the outside were all marching in lockstep towards the same goal. And in reality, there was so much conflict under the surface, sort of on the inside. And, and I've been, the more I've experienced different movements, the more I see it as it's, it's just a feature of intellectual activity that people are going to disagree. So let me sharpen the question a bit more. You said that in objectivism, everything can be proven. It's a rational philosophy. You know, the devil's, argue, devil's perspective uh, might be, well, shouldn't there be fewer disagreements? There are fewer disagreements than there would be in a irrational movement where one person had not 
does not have so much charisma that he can dominate over the others. You get a lot of cultish following in irrational movements where you might not have disagreements because everybody is surrendered to the leader, to the Jim Jones figure or uh, any of these uh, who is Werner Erhard and so forth. But I, I wanted to say about objectivism because it's an interesting epistemological point. The primary method of proof is inductive. It's not a matter of coming up with four syllogisms and saying, see, we were right on the issue of whether there should be a, uh, the, the city should allow a mosque to be built near the World Trade Center. That was one controversial thing um, some years back, New York City. Uh, it's an induction which calls upon all your knowledge because it's a philosophical induction. And those do get proved, but in order to see that they've been proved, you need to establish a, a wide, wide context. And it can take years for people to see that. So for instance, you could ask the same question about the novels. Well, why didn't Rourke just explain to Dominique that she had a malevolent universe premise and that he was going to be fine? Tell her that the evil is impotent. See, that wouldn't have integrated with anything that Dominique knew. Or why didn't Galt just go to Dagny and give her Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> you know? It's, it takes time for people to integrate a whole different perspective than they have been operating on and automatized. It, it can be done, it has been done. I know cases of people who are intellectual leaders in objectivism who had to integrate and correct errors. I myself was in Ayn Rand's doghouse in 1964-65 on the very issue of moral sanction, which I didn't understand. But within a few months, I, nine months, or so, I got out of it and she shook hands with me. Uh, so it's not that corrections don't occur. Rather, if the people are honest and working to understand, you do get agreement after a while. But unfortunately, the scope for less than fully rational is very wide. And that's much more prevalent than I had imagined as a young objectivist in the 60s. So a lot of the schisms, a lot, 90% of them, I think are due to non-thinking, non-integrating, uh, evading on the part of the people that we had to break with. Okay, I just want to see if I, let me ask you a Fine. question just to follow up on Harry's uh, comments just now about different schisms. In the, in the paper, and this is another, uh, this is my encouraging people to go and read it after today's conversation. In the paper, you talk about schisms and, and disputes in other intellectual movements that one could characterize as positive. And I just want you, if you could give us a flavor of what that looks like. Because one of the issues that I think often hinders people from thinking about these issues clearly is it's somewhat 
you know, certain things happen in public and certain things don't happen in public. And, and sometimes there are all sorts of ways people try to mask or rationalize what they're doing. And uh, so how do you think about that? What are some examples in, that you talk about in the paper? Yeah, two examples that come up in the paper that I think are fairly well known. One is that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had real disagreements, even though they're both, I mean, they're, they're bo they both worked on the Declaration of Independence. They were in agreement with it. They were in agreement with the American Revolution, but nevertheless had significant disagreements about, uh, say, the French Revolution, about what to do about slavery. They became political rivals for the presidency. Um, and much of that happens in public, but I'm sure there's things that happen in private as well that led to, I mean, it's for about a decade, I think a little more than a decade. They didn't even speak to one another. And that is, the, these are two, I think, essentially rational people who brought enormous values to the world. And yet the, that doesn't change the fact that if they're taking their own ideas and viewpoint seriously, including how to apply it and taking their value seriously, that it's the, the conflicts that they had, I can understand why they went their separate ways for over a decade. I, I mean, another conflict they had was when, um, when Adams is president, you get the Alien and Sedition Acts. And the, from Jefferson's perspective, and I think Jefferson is right about this, their real betrayal of the First Amendment and like that's not some small issue that you just say, okay, yeah, he's violating the First Amendment, but it doesn't really bother me and let's go to tea. I mean, that it's just not the right attitude if you're taking these ideas and the values seriously. Another example in the paper is the conflict between uh, William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, two of the prominent figures in the American abolition movement uh, pre the Civil War. And they disagreed intellectually or came to disagree intellectually about how to think about the US Constitution in relationship to slavery. Is it a document that in some way gives legitimacy or looks the other way towards slavery? Or is it something that it's, if you understand the full meaning of the Constitution, you can use it in the argument and fight against slavery. So in the fight for abolition. And they disagreed. Garrison thought, no, this constitution is a pro-slavery document in effect. And Douglas thought, no, we need to use the constitution and its principles in the very fight against slavery and the fight for abolition. That's again, that's a, that's a huge disagreement. And how are they going to work together um, if they have that, that level of difference about how to actually fight for the end of slavery. And then the, that, when you read about it, they also had um, disagreements. Uh, so for instance, Douglas thought that Garrison didn't really take into account how much Douglas has developed. And he sort of, I mean, this is from Frederick Douglass' side, that he wanted to keep Douglas, you testify, testify about your experience as a slave but how more broadly to think about slavery, to argue for its abolition, leave that to other people. And at some point, it seems like Douglas 
found that like you're disrespecting me. You're not treating me fully as the individual I have now become and felt morally disrespected. And so they parted ways, I think, in for intellectual reasons and for moral reasons. And that makes sense. And that you have these kinds of conflicts. That's the norm in intellectual movements, I think, including positive ones, because it's not self-evident how these ideas are to be applied. And it's uh, morality is a chosen, uh, it's chosen actions. So even someone who you think, yeah, they're basically, they have the right ideas, they can do things that are wrong. And people should judge that. And the participants in the movement should judge that as well. Let me come back to that thread and pull on it a bit more. And Harry, I want to bring you in on this question. So the way you characterize those historical examples, the devil's advocate question I'm going to put to you might seem less plausible, but let me put it to you nevertheless. So one argument I've heard, and that I think a lot of people find sympathy with, is we're in a war of ideas. There's too much work to be done to make advances towards our goal. All the infighting is a distraction. Why can't we just rally together? Why can't we all just get along? And how do you think about that perspective? Harry, let's start with you. Well, I, I think about it in terms of the difference between physical force and thinking. They're opposites, the dollar and the gun. Uh, a war of ideas is a metaphor, as pointed out in the paper. What we have is the attempt to spread better ideas. In that process, the role for allies exists only if you hold the same basic premises. If you read Ayn Rand's article, The Anatomy of Compromise, she points out three principles of uh, collaboration and cooperation. And one of them is that if two uh, sides are cooperating where they share the same basic premises, the more consistent will win if it's rationally identified. Another one is if the good side makes common cause with the evil side, it's the evil that will win because evil qua evil or mistaken qua mistaken even has nothing to gain, uh, sorry, can only gain, has nothing to contribute to the good. It's the good that's productive, that's right, that can prove things. And by allying with those who can't and who muddy it up, you hurt yourself. So in a war, you can be helped by an inept uh, uh, ally. So let's say in, in um, World War II, if uh, we allied with uh, France, uh, France was occupied, but at a certain point it was free. Okay, so maybe they're inept or Yugoslavia or something. Uh, they could help out, they could distract the enemy on that front because it's numbers that count. It's, it's guns and material and numbers that count. But in a war of ideas, it's consistency that counts, clarity that counts. So you wanna go out of your way to avoid uh, confusing your message with a weaker version of it or a bastardized version of it. 
I mean, that's the story of the fountainhead. That's the story of the Atlas Shrugged, the sanction of the victim, is that there you do not help yourself in a non-physical force context by allying with those who do not share your clarity and your consistency. Let me acknowledge, just as we are going through the conversation, we've, we've received a number of questions. We'll try to fit some in. Thank you to those of you who have submitted questions using Super Chat. We appreciate your support. We'll try to get to your questions as well. Uh, we give those priority if we can. So let me ask you, uh, turn back to you, Ankar, to ask this question. Is there some sense in which schisms can be a good thing? So the, the, I think some way in which we set up this conversation would be, would lead people to think, well, schisms are a problem. How do you navigate them? And in, in a certain way, they are problematic. But is there a sense in which they can be good or that they're evidence of something healthy? Yes. And if in intellectual movements, I think the disagreements and schisms often are healthy because they're often about fundamental issues. And there you gain clarity when people take sides and it's clear, okay, these are the sides. So to, to go back to the, the disagreement, the intellectual disagreement between Garrison and Douglas, you gain clarity, you, you get to hear, this is Garrison arguing for why the constitution, for why he thinks the constitution is a pro-slavery do document. And you hear Douglas forcefully making the case for the other view that no, it is, it is a tool and an essential tool in arguing for abolition. And instead of them saying, oh, this is a conflict that doesn't matter. It's yeah, we disagree about this, but it doesn't matter if you regard the constitution as a pro or anti-slavery document. That would really confuse people who are, even people who are on the side of, yeah, I'm against slavery, but is how do we think what are the principles that lead to you to be on the side of abolition and they're not contained in the constitution so it blurs that issue it's much better for them to say no this is a significant issue if you agree with me then you're in essential disagreement with garrison about how to pursue this how to actually achieve the abolition of slavery in the united states so that it's it's the, you, there's a real gain in clarity and the people who think of themselves as, yeah, I'm on the side of abolition, they then have to really confront that issue. Is Garrison correct or is Douglas correct? This is a public conflict. They're in effect arguing with each other. And it's much better for people in the movement and the movement as a whole to, to openly confront that issue. Uh, so it, to paper it over would be a real disservice. Uh, I'd like to add something from the objectivist history of uh, schisms, particularly David Kelly. When David Kelly issued his manifesto of what he thought was the proper way for objectivists to treat things, Leonard Peikoff responded with fact and value, which actually broke new ground in discussing the fact-value dichotomy and why there wasn't one uh, and why people tended to veer off from objectivism as Kelly had. It also clarified the issue of why is it wrong to be, quote, tolerant, quote, which was what people said before, non-judgmental, 
why it's important to judge, why you have to um, be critical of Marxist professors, which is something that, as I recall, Kelly was defending that we have to be open to there being good guys. Maybe I'm blackwashing his, his position, but he was pushing for less moral judgment, more agnosticism in morality and giving people way beyond the benefit of the doubt, overlooking a lot of things. And objectivism got clarified when we kicked him out and Leonard Peikoff wrote that piece, Fact and Value, which is on the ARI website, you can read it. Fascinating piece of philosophy in action. So this is on the Let theme me, of it clarifies, yeah. it helps the movement to make sharp lines where you will not go beyond. Let me ask you both a question that is coming up in some form in the questions I'm seeing. And also I think it's a natural question for people to have. I remember I became interested in the in objectivism around the, maybe a few years after some of the dispute with David Kelly was around. And the things that I was reading, the impression I got from talking to people was that it was essentially a trivial dispute over speaking at a dinner club. It was personalities. And what I've learned over the years is that, it, uh, as you were saying, there is a philosophic, a deep, deep philosophic issue at the heart of this. And that, as you were arguing just now, Harry, that there was clarity gained thanks to Dr. Peikoff's statement on this issue and that the one that the Institute agreed with. So you characterize it as we threw him out. And I, I take that as just colloquial, but let's dig into that. What does that mean? And it, what, how do you characterize, how do you think of David Kelly now? Because I think he still presents himself can as I, someone who- can I, yeah. can I respond to that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we threw him out, but the history that you thought is incorrect. We did not throw him out because he spoke at a libertarian supper club. We thought that was bad, but we threw him out because he issued a manifesto that he distributed publicly. And this was before the days of the, the internet. So it was mimeographed and handed out I have a copy of it. It's called A Question of Sanction. And he enunciated, he condemned what is official objectivist doctrine and enunciated a different view that was not objectivism. He thought it was, but it wasn't. And that's what caused us to break off, rather than saying throw him out, we just say break all relations and morally condemn him. The reason for the moral condemnation uh, or the background for the moral condemnation is that every single objectivist intellectual had spent considerable time arguing with him months and even years before this manifesto was issued. So some people had broken off with him two years before because of his views that were surfacing. I remember having him to my apartment for dinner and talking with him at length, trying to change his mind on some of these philosophical and applied philosophy issues. 
He just wasn't having any. So it, the reason that you have to consider it immoral is that he rejected all the arguments that everybody was giving to him, which were plainly correct. So it had to be he had an emotional agenda that was dominating his mind. Onkar, can I, can, I just want to check if we can bring Onkar in on the questions. Onkar, can you hear me all right still? Yes, I can. Okay, so yeah. let me ask you, uh, just on an aspect of this, if I can, uh, maybe you have something to add, but let me just add to the something else to the table. This idea, so in, in the, the case Harry was just describing, there was a philosophical disagreement, a, a, a profound one, whether it was understood by outsiders that way or not, that is really what was at issue. And, and there's reason to think that, uh, so there's, there's questions about what it is that David Kelly espouses and, and how does that relate to objectivism. But just on an aspect of that, how do you think about the Institute's role in uh, viewing other intellectuals? What, where, what kind of things do you consider in terms of when we bring in speakers? How do you evaluate that when we hire people? Um, what considerations come into that? And then, so, because one of the things you've said is that we, I think this comes up in the essay or it came up in a conversation, the Institute doesn't spend time policing the movement in the sense of this person's an objectivist, this person isn't. We just work with the people we think where there's value and we walk away where we don't. So I hope I, I haven't confused the issue too much, but I just want to put that on the table and get your reactions to it. Okay, let me say a few things on that. And it does relate to the issue of David Kelly that you were previously talking about. So we're concerned when we have people working at the Institute, and let, let me just restrict it here to people who are publicly facing their spokesmen in some sense for the Institute. The Institute is about objectivism. It's an Institute that is, the Ayn Rand Institute exists to teach people about objectivism that it exists and what it is. So we're an educational institution. So we obviously care, and we care deeply, about do we think our spokesmen understand the aspects of objectivism that they're presenting to the public, and public can be to students, a podcast like this, uh, going to a conference, and so on. We care about that, but it, objectivism is a philosophy. It's an integrated philosophy that takes morality seriously. And we were talking before about how seriously Ayn Rand takes justice and the issue of moral judgment. It also takes the issue of integrity very seriously, that you have to live by the principles that you are saying are correct. And you're telling, as spokesman, you're telling other people, this is what you should think is correct. This is what you should do. You have to live those. So we take as, as seriously as just the intellectual advocacy do people in their professional conduct and as representatives of ARI, do they embody the principles that they're discussing and advocating for? So it, both of those are important to ARI when we're thinking about who are we going to work with, who would we hire, who can be public facing people for the Institute. And this is, part in terms of thinking of the conflict with David Kelly. So Harry said a few things from a more insider's perspective, because he was involved with ARI in a professional capacity at that time. 
I was just a student. I was an undergraduate student. So a little ahead of you, Alon, you said you learned about it only after the fact that it happened. I was an undergraduate student at the time it was happening. And it was crystal clear to me that ARI was not disassociating from David Kelly because he's, he spoke at a libertarian um, function. It was after he issued a question of sanction that he said, you can circulate this and send it along to anyone you want. So it's pre-email, but you can make a photocopy of it and send it to people. So he wanted it to circulate. And it contradicted objectivism, I think. And for just from that perspective, you could understand, yeah, well, ARI, they should care who the intellectual spokesmen are for the Institute. And if they think someone's getting the philosophy really wrong, you can't be a spokesman anymore. But what was also clear to me as a student, so I didn't know what the answers were fully. And so fact and value came like as a, it's a really important essay. It clarified all kinds of things about how to think about the relationship of fact and value from a positive direction. But it was also clear to me as just as an undergraduate student that David Kelly's viewpoint is not objectivism. You might think David Kelly's correct and what objectivism says on some of these issues is incorrect, but that they're the same viewpoint that part of what he was arguing is that you can't really judge ideas morally. You can judge them as true and false, but not good and bad. Actions are what you judge as good and bad. And there was sort of an implication and you don't really think about true and false in regard to that. And that's so clearly not Ayn Rand's position that she doesn't evaluate ideas and doesn't evaluate them morally. And that's clear in Atlas Shrugged. And it's clear, I mean, she has an essay, Philosophical Detection, where this, and it, this whole sentence is italicized. Evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. And a philosophy just is a set of ideas that she's saying is evil. So the idea that in objectivism, you can't evaluate ideas. It's just, David Kelly might be right that objectivism is wrong on this, but he was presenting it as this is what objectivism says. and that to me went from, okay, this is not just an intellectual error. This is a professional philosopher. There's no way he can really think that this is what objectivism says. And there's, there's so some element of pretense here. And that brings you to, okay, then that's a moral issue, not just an intellectual disagreement. I wanna- Yeah, I, 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 wanna, I, wanna, I wanna wait in on it. Maybe it's beating a dead horse, but what would you do what would you, dear reader, dear listener, what would you do if you thought that people you knew personally in the objectivist movement were being moralistic, as the term was used, were, were being improperly judgmental, improperly irrational judgmental, and thought they were being properly judgmental? Would you issue a public statement attacking them? Or would you discuss it with people you knew and where you considered your allies in the movement? I mean, it's just so obvious in a way, the answer is, yeah, he broke with us because he issued this manifesto attacking our whole way of doing business rather than attempting to you know, do what people want us to do to him, with him and with the other people. Persuade us, 
get us to understand his point of view and to see that it isn't what we think it is. So let me bring up a few questions now, some of them from the audience, some of them from me, about the principles guiding the Institute. So that is a big part of what the essay discusses. And a number of things have been covered already, but so I just wanna name them. And if you wanna elaborate, let's do that. But um, so one is collaboration should be voluntary. And if not, then the two parties go their separate ways. They're voluntary and recognized as mutually beneficial. So there's no reason to collaborate with people you think are not serving your goals. The issue of integrity has come up that we take it very seriously, both integrity to the philosophy as an organization. We try to be consistent with, with the philosophy of objectivism. We hire experts and we have the board to help us with that. And then integrity on the individual level in terms of living the philosophy, trying to apply it as, as conscientiously as one can. And then a, a point that came up earlier, I'm just gonna list these and we can, we can dive in a bit more. Uh, that came up at the frame when we started framing the conversation, the issue of moral sanction. And I think this is a point I, I'd like to dig in a bit more about because I think it's a distinctive perspective that Ayn Rand has, that moral sanction is a really important issue. Granting it is a significant step and withholding it is a significant step. It's not something one does lightly. Uh, so having put those on the table, let me ask you, do you, can you just tell us a bit more about the issue of moral sanction? And if I characterized some of the principles accurately so far, are there, are there any gaps that you wanna fill in? Well, the, ad copy on the back of Atlas Shrugged, the edition I read said, he said he would stop the motor of the world, and he did. What is the motor of the world as presented in Atlas Shrugged? Moral values. What drives the plot? Reardon learning about the sanction of the victim. It's Ayn Rand held correctly that there's no one as naive as a cynic. He doesn't understand the power of morality. Look at what's going on in the Ukraine. It's all about the world, in, starting with the Ukrainians, damning as evil the Soviet incursion, invasion into uh, Ukraine. And how that is going to limit what Putin can do. He has to censor from his own people what he's doing, but they're going to find out. And the question is, will he be able to re remain in power once the people know the horrific things that he did for no particular purpose other than his own personal aggrandizement? So moral sanction is extremely important. But combine that with the point I said at the beginning of it, proportionality, that a small evil on the part of someone you have virtually no relationship with does not get the same kind of treatment as a stab in the back by a person you thought was your best friend. Onkar, did you or want to add to it? Or public manifesto attacking you. Sure. Let me hand over to Onkar. Did you want to add to this? Yeah, let me add a comment about Ukraine from the other direction. So what Harry was bringing up, 
I think now is that people are withdrawing their moral sanction from yeah. Putin and from what Russia is doing. They're calling him, it the, him and his actions evil. That's starting with Ukraine, but I've been surprised to the level that the Europeans are doing it because the Europeans tend to compromise and be wishy-washy on everything. And that's what had enabled Putin to think that he could do this and get away with it. So the fact that he was given moral approval prior to this and in all kinds of ways, from membership in the United Nations to a permanent seat on the Security Council. Um, the, the United Nations is supposedly an organization dedicated to peace. And you have here a tyrant and a dictator and the former member of the secret police in Soviet Russia. And this is viewed as, yeah, okay, you, you have, of course you're a legitimate statesman and we'll have talks with you and try to have agreements. And then just from the US perspective, the appeasement of, uh, of Putin. So the treating of him as though he's a legitimate head of state, that goes back uh, to Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, Bush saying, uh, like when he's at uh, Bush Jr., how can you know you can trust Putin? Well, I looked him in the eyes and that, that's how he makes a judgment. I mean, the complete intuition uh, form of judgment, that's non-judgment, to the Obama administration after Russia uh, and Putin invaded Georgia, we're going to have a reset of our relationship. And I had forgotten this, but I just read this um, in the last few days. Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of, uh, she was Secretary of State, right, who literally brought to the meeting a big red button to symbolize, yeah, I'm pressing reset on our relationship. And what the reset meant was, okay, we'll evade the fact that you invaded Georgia and let's try to get along. Um, it, it, complete capitulation. And the same then you saw with the Trump administration, yeah, maybe Putin can hack uh, the, the America and we'll get more dirt on the Democrats and Hillary Clinton. So it was complete treating of him as he's a legitimate head of state. And that's what emboldens someone. And to withdraw that treatment, then it's they're faced with the, the no more aid from the good. And that is when they will start to wither. So let me identify something else that comes up in the paper that I thought would be useful to talk about. One of the principles, I think, overarching uh, throughout the essay is that one, one way the Institute tries to approach these issues is taking the, the idea of objectivity very seriously. And Ayn Rand has a distinctive view of objectivity and the whole theory of knowledge. And one of the implications of that, if I understand the argument uh, correctly, is that one implication of that is it's important in thinking about disputes like this as an outsider, and also I think as an insider, it's really important for people on the outside, is to recognize the difference between public and private disputes and what information has been disclosed, what hasn't been disclosed, what would it look like to be in a position to know certain things and what has been asked of you. I wanted you, maybe uh, uh, Harry, you could start us off with, just say a bit more about what, what, how important, how do you think of this distinction? It's in the title of the essay, right? So it's very central to what you're arguing. Yeah, this is, this is, maybe the most important new point in the article, certainly up there, 
It's one thing to make a private judgment. It's another thing to make a public judgment. So you may decide if you know two people are getting divorced, you may decide in your own mind, well, the husband was more in the right than the wife. But it's very different if you go on Facebook and start attacking the wife and defending the husband. How are other people supposed to process that? So taking a dispute which involves a history of personal relationship issues and going to the public with it and say, except my version of events, these events happened, which you didn't even know about. And you have to accept my version of it because I was there is flag flagrantly non-objective. And you're treating your audience as if they're supposed to take you on faith. So the, the other side may then have to respond or it may decide as we did in the case of our dispute with uh, Craig Biddle and Carl Barney, that it was too non-objective, the attacks that they have made on us on the web are too non-objective to respond to, it would be sanctioning them for us to get into what actually our version of events that happened. So why is a person going public with a dispute that's private? It's different with David Kelly, because he said things that are public, like an article by Peter Schwartz are wrong. And things that are public, like the way that uh, the Ayn Rand Institute presents itself to the world is wrong. Okay, he's not asking you to take him on faith. He's supplying bad arguments or bad assertions for a wrong non-objectivist view. But it's a step lower if you attack some institution or body in terms of things that the, the reader has no access to verify. Car, let me hand it over to you. Did you want to add to this? I'll say one thing again about the David Kelly situation, because I think there too, you could see, it's useful to see the difference between the public and the private. Harry's encouraged people to read fact and value. And I definitely second that recommendation. And one of the things, it's not the main point in fact and value, but one of the points that Dr. Peikoff makes there is that he's responding to David Kelly's on a question of sanction, which is, as I'm stressing, was public, even though it's not on the web, because the web doesn't exist yet, but it was meant to be public and it was circulating in the objectivist movement with Kelly's um, approval. That's what he's responding to. It comes out, in fact, in value that Dr. Peikoff severed his relationship with Kelly earlier on. What about something that happened in private? And it's important that Dr. Piaf doesn't then now, when that happens, issue some statement that all objectivists should break with David Kelly because of something that happened in private that I'm just telling you happened and you have no way of verifying it. And that's, that's the difference between public and private, that it's when Dr. Piaf's arguing a question of a sanction, which is public, it's all wrong. It's a betrayal of objectivism. You can judge that independently. 
when he says, well, Kelly said this to me, and so I ended my professional and personal relationship with him. I can understand, like if that happened, I can understand why Dr. Peacock ended his relationship, but he's not trying to convince me that it happened, let alone that I should have ended my relationship with him two years ago or something like that. And so it's very different, the context of yep. when you're arguing about something that is public and a person can look at firsthand and when they cannot. Yeah, I wanted to add to that, that Ayn Rand broke with several people that were close to her uh, that you don't know anything about, unless you've been in objectivism for decades, you know, uh, because it was not over anything that had occurred in public. It was not something that an individual could publicly verify. So uh, there's a the, the two points are, there's a big difference between private criticism and public criticism, and it's non-objective to make public criticisms that involve things the person can't themselves verify. They come down to he said, she said. Let me uh, turn to the point that you make in the essay that brings up a, a distinct, another distinctive objectivist view coming from the theory of knowledge, epistemology, the idea of the arbitrary, because part of what the essay claims is that some of the recent allegations in the dispute that you mentioned with Carl Barney and, and Craig Biddle versus the Institute, the claims there you, you characterize as arbitrary given the level of non-objectivity. So let me start with what is the arbitrary, just so we have a, an understanding for the audience who may be not familiar with that, and then I have a further follow-up on that. Ankar, do you want to start with that? Uh, or you want sure. To? So I'll, I'll say just a word on the general of, of the, the idea of the arbitrary. So it's this is a you could say it's a, a technical term or a term of art in objectivism that comports with the general meaning or one of the general meanings of arbitrary. An arbitrary idea or claim is a claim for which no evidence is offered. And indeed, it's usually, I don't need evidence. I'm putting this forth. You knock it down. You respond to it. I'm not going to try to give you evidence, let alone try to prove it. Um, and so it's a claim that's really defying the need for evidence. Such a, when you get something like that, what objectivism says is you do not respond to it you cannot in a cognitive way respond to it because you can't, you certainly can't say it's true, but you can't say it's false because you can't say, look, okay, you're, you're, you've given this evidence, but it doesn't really establish what you think it does, or there's some counter evidence that you haven't taken into consideration. And that would lead, if you took it into consideration, that would lead to a different conclusion. So you can't do anything like that. So you can't show that it's false because showing it, that it's false is showing that the evidence is inadequate to establish what the conclusion supposedly has been established is. When there is no evidence offered, you cannot do anything like that. You should dismiss it out of hand. It's worse than the false because it's a pretense. It's a pretense that they're trying to understand things. They're trying to reach knowledge when they're not even trying. They haven't, if you're not interested at all, what's the evidence and does the evidence really establish what I'm saying that it established? 
you're not trying to reach knowledge. And a falsehood is something where a person has tried and failed. And if you haven't tried, you can't even say that, well, you failed. So in that sense, it's worse than failing. It's the pretense that you're concerned with knowledge and truth when you're not concerned. And that that's, I think, what is meant by the category of the arbitrary in objectivism. And it's damned by objectivism. Like, this is really, really bad to engage in the arbitrary. I would like to add to that that you cannot refute something asserted on the basis of the following rules. I get to assert anything I feel like, and you have to knock it down. If you can't su successfully knock it down, then my assertion stands. Maybe not as certain, but as uh, a hypothesis. If you play that game, it goes like this. Uh, you cheated on your wife, didn't you? When, where, how, with whom, what are you saying? Well, you were uh, seen in Topeka in uh, early spring with a beautiful blonde and your wife was home. Oh, that was uh, completely false. That's a mistaking of me with my cousin who looks like me. I was in Albany, New York. And I can prove it because I was in uh, the, all, the state legislature making a case for a free market. Well, how do you know, how do we know that that wasn't uh, somebody who looks like you who was testifying in Albany? Or where are your papers to prove that you were in Albany? And how do we know these papers? They could have been forged. How do we know it's not a conspiracy? Maybe there is no Albany. You can't win a game where you are always playing defense and he can throw in whatever he wants. That is playing the game of the arbitrary, which is pseudo-cognition. It's not aimed at the truth. It's aimed at maintaining a thesis without the need to show why that thesis should be even entertained as a possibility. So let me follow up on that with what you set out to do in the paper is not to rebut various claims that have been made in the, in the recent conflict. Uh, and in, in the final section of the paper, you, you respond to some of those claims. So maybe you could help sharpen for us the, the difference in your mind between what would it look like to rebut a claim and what is it that you one would do with an arbitrary claim once is seen as arbitrary? How do you respond to that? Said to let me, me, let me offer it to yeah. Let me offer it to Ankar. So the proper response to it when you identify it as the arbitrary is to dismiss it. It's not to engage with it. Here we're talking in the context of people making public accusations and allegations of things that happened in private and particularly making, so who's the audience? It's third parties, it's outsiders, it's people who have not been privy to what happened behind closed doors. I mean, that's what it means that it's closed doors. There's a lot of people who are outside of that. 
And if you're making a case to the outsider, an outsider has to ask, have I been given any evidence that I can actually think about process and consider, yeah, okay, this is some evidence or it's not any evidence, but can the, the outsider in a first-handed way actually access it and think about it? And often the answer to that question is no, that the person who's gone public with things that's allegedly happened in private all the person, the outsider knows is, okay, this guy's making allegations about what happened in private, but I have no idea. I didn't know before these allegations were made what happened behind closed doors. And I don't know now. And it's, and I have not advanced at all cognitively that now, okay, well, now I know something about what happened behind closed doors. You don't know anything. Um, and uh, to give examples that that here's an example that this kind of thing happens all the time that the leading CEOs are attacked and Jeff Bezos as now the richest man or he, I mean it, it oscillates a bit but at times he's the richest man in the world and he's attacked because of that and one of the kinds of attacks is it's perverse but it's he doesn't know how to run his business and there's things like in meetings at Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos is a jerk. He treats people badly. And so on. Do you know what happens in meetings at Amazon behind closed doors? And I think the answer to that is no. And if someone now posts on the internet, oh, but he's, he's a jerk in meetings at Amazon. Do you now know anything about what happens in meetings at Amazon? And I think the answer is no. You can't say, yeah, no, I don't know for certain if he's a jerk, but I now know it's possible because someone said it on the internet. And even if the person's an ex-employee of Amazon and says, oh yeah, Jeff Bezos is a jerk in meetings, I don't think that raises it to, for an outsider into the category of even it's a possible or it's a hypothesis. I mean, it's a common phenomenon for people to be disgruntled, former employees and so on. And it's not that one employee makes some accusation and now you know, okay, it's possible and I've got to investigate if I'm concerned, if I'm a shareholder in Amazon or something like that. And that, it, so from the outsider's perspective, I think such a claim is arbitrary and the person making it is just trying to smear. They're not actually interested in, can an outsider judge this? Is it even possible now that he should think, yeah, this is a hypothesis? So, they're not concerned with that. They're concerned with hoping if I make some allegation, it will taint the person I'm attacking in the minds of third parties. Harry, did you want to add? Because I have, I have four more questions that could. No, I think you guys. that was a very complete answer. You said okay. everything that I could have said. Good. Let me turn to a, a different perspective on this sort of issue. So the essay, one purpose of the essay is to set down in writing and make objective how the Institute approaches these issues and what principles guide uh, the thinking on them. For people, and a lot of what you, we, we've brought out in this conversation is rich with advice for how to think about some of these kinds of issues from the outsider's perspective. So let me ask, building on the, the last comment from you, Ankar, about the attitude someone on the outside should take looking at this. And I, I think there are people who are going to be more concerned, have vested in objectivism, vested in the movement and, and its success. 
I've seen, I remember conflicts where one of the common reactions people had, this is going back maybe 10 years ago, was I'm going to become an investigative reporter. I'm going to dig into this. I'm going to interview people. I'm going to be a fact finder. And not because they're journalists, but just because they see themselves as really vested and want to know and get at the information. And what I'm hearing from the conversation so far is that that doesn't seem like the right approach. Uh, how, would you, how would you guide people in terms of just what epistemological guidance is there when you see something like this break out into public view? Uh, what, what sort of approach would you recommend for people? Yeah. Can I, I speak to that? Yeah, why don't you start, the, Harry? The two, um, two things that you can go by, one is the nature of the entities involved, what your opinion is of the two disputants. Uh, and the other is, I guess there's three. The second is the consistency of their case. Are there contradictions in their case? Or is it, does it all integrate and all make sense as a whole together? In the light of the nature of what you think you know about the character and uh, track record of the two parties. And the third is what we've just been covering. Has one of the parties gone public with a dispute that it was non-objective to take public and which should not have happened? Do they expect you to take their, their version of events on faith? After, <coughs> there's another whole level, after the, the time has passed, the thing that's most revelatory is the subsequent behavior of the two parties. So if you look over the history of schisms when Ayn Rand was alive, the uh, first one that was public was with Nathaniel Brandon, and he wrote on the benefits and hazards of Ayn Rand's philosophy, stressing what he thought were the hazards. So it was a repudiation of it. Um, and uh, David Kelly, after he broke free, howled up with Nathaniel Brandon, who had admitted to lying to Ayn Rand about a very serious personal issue uh, over years. So that was no problem for David Kelly. So if you look at what happened with him and with the others that we think have been immoral, and not every break has been over things that are immoral. Uh, you find the trajectory of the character of the person is the single most revelatory uh, line of information you can pursue. So that's, you know, at the time, the consistency, uh, what you know about the people involved, and the objectivity of going public with it. And later, watch what the track record becomes of the two parties, each of the parties. Ankar, let me pass it to you and, and add a little wrinkle to this, which is, is it the case that someone on the outside should feel that they are 
required to take a position on a on something like this, where a dispute that was private has been made public? No. So in the sense, if a position means I need now to figure out what actually happened behind closed doors. No, you do not have to take a position on that. And often you can't. So it, that is, you can't do it rationally or objectively because you don't know what happened behind closed doors. So you could call it a position to say, I don't know what happened. But if by a position you mean a, a decision about, okay, I think X happened or Y happened, you're often not in a position to do that. And, and that is true even if someone in the private dispute is says he's made some facts public. It, you certainly don't know if the, those facts actually are facts. You don't know the full context of the situation. Um, when you're making moral judgments about conflicts, people, people's character, you should it, it, you should be aware of the fact of how much information and processing of that information of thinking okay the person said this or he acted like this what does that really mean what do i think about this in the total context of what he's doing and so on how do i evaluate that that's difficult and when you don't know what happened how are you going to make real judgments about who was in the right who was in the wrong so you don't have to take a position and you often can't take a position in logic or if you're following reason. But what you can judge is the fact that someone has gone public in this private dispute. And you can ask, why are they going public? And have they given reasons for why they're going public? And do those reasons make sense? Um, and what do they think people should do with the fact that, okay, now they've gone public and say, and say uh, this happened and that happened. Should people just accept this now that they said, oh, so it must have happened? Or should people say, okay, that's what you said, but I have no idea what happened. I've not even heard from the other side. I don't see why the other side should even respond to this. Why do they have to get dragged into a public dispute now and spend part of their lives trying to defend themselves? So you can judge the act of the person going public and what you think of that. But that's not the same as, but now I know what happened in private. And Let I, think me, to, I think you have ahead, to be realistic. You have to be realistic about what people can, how different people can be in private from how they are when they're in public. For instance, Nathaniel Brandon act entirely differently to the people in the collective, as it was called. When Ayn Rand was present and when she was absent. And there are people who I know who seem like kindness and light. I know several people like this. In dealing with uh, people who are strangers or, or um, acquaintances, but are really different people if you would see them with their hair down in uh, private over an extended period of time. So people put on public faces and what goes on behind closed doors is often very different than what you would think goes on behind closed doors uh, given their public facade. 
Let me uh, ask you guys a final question. We're over time, so I'm gonna make this just something that we can bring some of the threads together. In the essay, and we've talked about it in this conversation too, you, you debunk the, the, the metaphor of a war of ideas and, and how that's not really an, a helpful metaphor. Another one that comes up in this sort of situation is the so-called court of public opinion in the sense that it's not a court you know, in a legal sense, it's not, it doesn't have any of the same rules, but it's people are gonna judge things in the court of public opinion. And from what I'm hearing and from what I remember in the essay, there is a, a significant difference and one has to take seriously that there, courts have processes and that uh, a lot of them are designed to get at the goal of objectivity in knowledge and to rule out certain kinds of behavior. And I wanted to, so one, do you, just a response to that, but under that one concrete thing to put in there, which is, this is true both in, in actual courts and then when people take disputes public that are not public to begin with, the, how do you think of the status, the evidentiary status of um, eyewitness testimony or firsthand testimony that people include? So first, just the framing of how do you think about a court versus the so-called court of public opinion? And then where do you fit in uh, firsthand testimony? So let me start with you, Ankar. Yeah, so the court of public opinion is a metaphor. It's not a literal courtroom. It doesn't have the processes and procedures that are put into place in a proper courtroom precisely in order to be able for the judge or the jury to be able to evaluate the case and reach an objective judgment. So what, and this is part of the reason that we have a court system that when there are private disputes, to reach an understanding of what one thinks happened in that private dispute. And then if there's, I mean, if it rises to the level of a court case that someone's uh, rights have been violated, a lot is required to establish that. And a courtroom has processes by which to do that, which includes that the judge wants to hear the best case from each side, but there's also, there's a discovery process if we're talking here about a, a civil case where you have to disclose documents, information, you're interviewed by the, the counsel of the other side, ask questions that you have to answer, even if you don't wanna answer those and supply documents and so on. So there's a process by which the private information is brought to, to the fore for the judge or the jury who has to make a decision about this. And there's penalties if you withhold information or if you're shown to have lied or misrepresented things. So it's, a, it's an elaborate process. And if you've ever been, I've been involved in some civil cases, even with all these procedures, it can be difficult for the judge as it's an outsider, third party, has not seen firsthand anything of what happened and usually will not have a view of either of the parties. So that is already suspicious of one of them. And um, it's difficult to reach that, that you have enough evidence to think, okay, I know sufficiently what happened to make a ruling in favor of one and against the other. But none of that happens in the so-called court of public opinion, which is, 
it's not a courtroom. And so none of these pr processes exist. And you have to keep that in mind when you're thinking about things that have been brought into by one side into the public and how to think about that and how to make judgments about that. Harry, any thoughts to add on that? I, I think it's pretty clear that the court of public opinion is a, an, an unserious metaphor, just a way of saying that it's being argued in public. I would like to add on a positive note that the epistemological principles that have developed in the English common law, which is also our law in the United States, are marvelously good. I've looked at them and uh, objectivity is paramount. Evidence is required, objections can be made. There's answers to the objections. It's a very rational system. There are many other things wrong with the trial and court system, but not the rules of evidence. Well, thank you uh, for that. And thank you both for joining today. Uh, thank you to our audience and those of you who are on the Super Chat for your support for what we do. And for all your questions, I hope you, I, I was trying to fit as many of them in in various ways as I could. I hope you got your questions addressed in some form. And for those of you who are listening and haven't yet read the essay that we're talking about of schisms, public and private, I strongly, strongly urge you to go and find it. It's a new ideal, our journal, and we put a short link on the screen for you and it'll be in the show notes as well. And the other essay that has come up numerous times in this conversation is one by Dr. Peacock that dates back uh, a couple of decades. It's called Fact and Value. Highly recommend that you take a look at that. That is also available on the Ayn Rand Institute website. It's a really profound essay, well worth your time. It repays the effort to get to read through it. Uh, it's a deep philosophic issue. So those are, I would encourage you to go and explore those if you're interested in these issues. And a couple of notes about what we're doing uh, next week, we'll be back here with another podcast. I'll be joined by my colleague, Ben Baer. We'll be talking about the issue of nationalism and the conflict of Ukraine, which has come up today. We'll be here next week. And as always, we welcome your feedback and questions. You can reach us by email, newideal at aynrand.org. We take your suggestions, comments, feedback. We read it all. Sometimes we respond as best we can. And if you're watching on YouTube or other platforms, please like, share this video, leave a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you aren't already subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do and remember to click the bell to get notifications. This all helps us reach a larger audience and we appreciate your uh, doing that. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Onkar uh, and Harry, for both for the conversation and for the essay. I found it really illuminating and thanks for the conversation today as well. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.